chapter three of abraham lincoln a history volume ten this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org abraham lincoln a history volume ten by john hay and john george nicolay chapter three fort fisher and wilmington the ports of wilmington and savannah after the capture of new orleans and the strict blockade of charleston and especially after the occupation of mobile bay became the most important and valuable means of communication with the outside world which were left to the confederacy in spite of the utmost efforts of the national vessels an extensive trade was carried on between these ports and those west indian islands which had been taken as points of transshipment for the contraband goods exported from england to the confederacy and for the cotton which formed the only coin by which the south paid its debts to europe there was a peculiarity about the harbour of wilmington which rendered it the favourite port of entry for blockade runners the city stands on the cape fear river about twenty-eight miles from the sea there is a good entrance to the river at its mouth and another by new inlet six miles in a straight line to the north the space between them merely sand and shallow water is called smith's island the southern extremity of which is the sharp headland of cape fear beyond which stretch the frying-pan shoals for ten miles the southern entrance was protected by fort caswell the northern by fort fisher between the two on the mainland was the village of smithville where the blockaders lay in wait watching their chance to dart out to sea by one or the other sally port those wishing to enter would wait outside till evening fell and then dash in through the blockading fleet to the safe shelter of the guns of one or the other fort legitimate trade had ceased immediately on the proclamation of the blockade by the president but the necessities of the confederacy and the hope of enormous profits by enterprising english adventurers formed together so powerful a stimulus to blockade running that as a matter of course it at once assumed a considerable development and for a time actually increased in proportion to the means taken to suppress it the confederates had little use for their cotton except as a medium of exchange it therefore fell to a lower price than usual in the south while the dearth of it in england and in the north caused an enormous increase in its value in those countries the difference between eight cents a pound at which it could be purchased in wilmington and two shillings at which it could be sold in liverpool afforded a profit which would compensate for almost any possible risk three successful voyages would pay for a vessel and the odds against a blockade runner were nothing like so great as that a single ship the r e lee ran the blockade twenty-one times between december eighteen sixty two and november eighteen sixty three carrying abroad six thousand bales of cotton 
this was a case of extraordinary success but it was the opinion of our naval officers that two-thirds of the vessels attempting to enter wilmington during the first half of eighteen sixty four were successful it is true that sixty steamers running the blockade were captured or destroyed by the squadron before wilmington but in many cases these had more than paid for themselves before their fate overtook them and yet the blockade was one of the most effective ever seen in war captures to the amount of many millions of dollars were made and the shore was strewn with the wrecks of ships which were destroyed in the attempt to escape in the latter part of eighteen sixty four the blockade was greatly increased in stringency three cordons of ships were drawn about the blockaded ports the first as close as it could lie to the shore and the third one hundred and thirty miles from land even through all these toils the long narrow and swift steel cruisers sometimes made their way but the proportion of those which were captured grew so large that the industry languished the most prudent had retired with their gains and the business was no longer what it had been the government of the united states might have been satisfied with the results of the blockade but for its tremendous expense to watch the port of wilmington required a vast armada and it was for this reason fully as much as to put a stop to contraband trade that the navy department and the president constantly urged upon the military authorities a joint expedition of the army and navy against fort fisher mr wells had from time to time during the war tried to effect this purpose but it was not until the autumn of eighteen sixty four that he could get the promise of a military force to assist the naval attack he at once took measures to make ready as great a force as possible and offered the command of it to admiral farragut his health which had been seriously impaired by his incessant exertions and exposures in the gulf compelled that energetic officer to decline this appointment he was then given to rear-admiral d d porter who had greatly distinguished himself by his zeal and ability in command of the mississippi squadron a fleet of naval vessels says mr wells surpassing in numbers and equipments any which had assembled during the war was collected with dispatch at hampton roads general grant promised an expeditionary force of over six thousand men it was the wish of the president and the war department that general gillmore should have command of these troops but that brave and capable officer had fallen under general grant's displeasure and he had substituted general godfrey weitzel being informed of the plan proposed weitzel went down to new inlet in the last days of september and with the assistance of rear-admiral s p lee made a thorough reconnaissance of the place he found fort fisher a most formidable work the confederates had made the best use of the long leisure afforded them and had built an imposing fortress on the narrow sand-spit which runs northward from new inlet between cape fear river and the sea a small outwork called fort buchanan was built on the shore of the inlet a half mile to the north fort fisher stretched all the way across the narrow peninsula at that point only about five hundred yards wide the land faced looked north the sea faced east running along the beach for thirteen hundred yards 
the northern front mounted twenty-one guns and three mortars the sea front twenty-four the work was so extensive that if it had consisted of its vast parapet alone it would have protected only those immediately under the wall they had therefore built an extraordinary series of traverses made bomb-proof so that fort fisher really consisted of something like a dozen small forts in one enclosure weitzel returned and reported the result of his observations to grant who told him he did not think he would start the expedition that the navy had advertised it too widely by rendezvousing the fleet at hampton roads a charge which seems hardly reasonable as the fleet could not sail without a rendezvous the plan lay in abeyance for several weeks it was taken up with renewed spirit on account of an idea conceived by general butler suggested by reading of the great destruction consequent upon an explosion of gunpowder at erith england he supposed that firing a large mass of powder some four hundred yards from fort fisher would for the moment paralyze the garrison and so injure the work as to render its capture easy this plan after it had been tried and failed seemed very ridiculous and every one concerned in the affair except butler made haste to disavow all responsibility for it but no one thought it ridiculous when it was suggested general butler says it was readily embraced by the secretary of the navy and with more caution by the president after a thorough study of the subject by accomplished officers of the army and navy it was decided that the experiment was worth trying the louisiana a boat of little value was selected and fitted out and loaded with two hundred and thirty-five tons of powder it was then the first week in december sherman was approaching savannah and general grant in view of the weakening of the garrison of wilmington by the detachment of troops to meet the victors of atlanta was anxious for the expedition to be off he afterwards said that he had never dreamed of general butler's going with it that he had given his orders to weitzel through butler his department commander as required by military courtesy without any thought of his going in person butler contradicted this statement insisting that his purpose was known to grant from the beginning however this may be the expedition started under the worst possible auspices weitzel who had been selected to command it never read his orders which had been communicated by grant to butler and not shown to weitzel in these orders grant had said the object of the expedition will be gained on effecting a landing on the mainland between cape fear river and the atlantic north of the north entrance to the river should such landing be effected whether the enemy hold fort fisher or the batteries guarding the entrance to the river there the troops should entrench themselves and by cooperating with the navy effect the reduction and capture of those places it was an oversight almost incredible that general butler did not say a word to weitzel of these clear and important instructions to make a bad matter worse neither butler nor weitzel was on good terms with admiral porter who was to command the fleet the history of this unfortunate expedition as written by the principal participators is little more than a series of mutual recriminations 
the fleet sailed from hampton roads on the thirteenth of december and the transports with six thousand five hundred troops on the next day from the lack of a good understanding so essential in such cases they did not arrive together at the rendezvous butler went at once to new inlet but admiral porter put in at beaufort to coal and received ammunition as he says for now that the expedition had waited two months there was no particular hurry when the admiral was ready to go in and explode the powder-boat on the eighteenth butler suggested delay until the sea which had grown rough should subside a gale came on which lasted several days and which the fleet at anchor rode out in the most creditable manner when the storm abated porter again informed butler who in his turn had gone to beaufort for coal and water that the powder-boat would be exploded on the night of the twenty third of december admiral porter seems up to this time to have expected a great effect from the explosion he suggested to butler that even at a distance of twenty-five miles the explosion might affect the boilers of his steamers and in another letter he says the powder vessel is as complete as human ingenuity can make her she was towed to her place near the beach four hundred yards from the fort by the wilderness under the charge of two of the bravest and most accomplished officers of the navy captain alex c rind and lieutenant s w preston both of them volunteers every contingency was provided for it was even arranged between those two devoted sailors that if she were boarded by the enemy and in danger of capture preston at a signal given by rind was to stick a lighted candle into a bag of powder all this devotion however was to go for nothing there is even a touch of the comic about this daring deed of two of the most heroic men our navy has known they lighted their fuses and kindled a fire of pine knots in the cabin of the louisiana and then jumped into their boats and pulled for the wilderness the fuses were set for an hour and a half the wilderness steamed out to sea the whole fleet waited with breathless apprehension for the result the explosion took place at forty-five minutes past one there was a blaze on the horizon a dull detonation and nothing more there was little or no concussion felt on ship or shore it was general butler's opinion that the ignition was imperfect in fact that not more than one-tenth of the powder was burned at daylight the admiral got his fleet under way and stood in towards the fort in line of battle he attacked in fine style and soon silenced the guns of the fortress to all appearance though as it turned out little damage was done at evening general butler arrived with some of the transports but as it was too late to land the fleet retired to a safe anchorage the next day was christmas the transports were all on hand and under cover of the guns of the fleet which kept up an annoying fire all the morning the troops began to land about five miles north of the fort weitzel took the first five hundred as a reconnoitring party and pushed rapidly towards the fort capturing on the way the small garrison of an outlying earthwork on questioning the prisoners he found they belonged to hoke's division which he had left at richmond and that the rest of the brigade to which they belonged was a mile and a half to the rear this convinced him that the garrison of fort fisher had been 
newly strengthened and this impression was deepened by the fact that the next squad he captured said they were outside the fort because the bomb proofs were full this was not encouraging information but he pushed on advancing his skirmish line to within one hundred and fifty yards of the fort and from a knoll had a good view of the interior of the work what he saw powerfully impressed him the fort was practically uninjured and seemed to him with its thick parapets its bastions in high relief its bomb-proof traverses the strongest work he had seen during the war weitzel was a brave and intelligent soldier but he had been engaged in five assaults of entrenchments three times attacking twice defending the works on all five occasions the party attacking was repulsed and weitzel decided naturally enough that he would not advise an attack upon a work stronger than any he had ever attacked in vain or defended successfully weitzel reported to butler the result of his reconnaissance which was confirmed by general c b comstock of grant's staff who had also reconnoitred the work upon this report general butler made the capital mistake of the expedition grant's orders were clear and explicit the landing itself was to be regarded as a success if the work did not fall at once the troops were to stay there and entrench themselves and with the help of the navy reduce and capture the place general butler chose to assume that he had not effected a landing because all of his troops had not yet got ashore the weather began to look unfavorable he therefore resolved to abandon the enterprise and return to fort monroe even then he did not show his orders to weitzel who said afterwards that if he had known of their existence he would have advised differently while the generals afloat were coming to this unfortunate conclusion one of the officers ashore had made up his mind in the opposite sense general n m curtis a man of unusual physical strength courage and energy had pushed his advance almost to the parapet of the fort the fire of the navy had been so severe as to confine the garrison in great part to the bomb-proof so that curtis's men were hardly molested in their approach they came so near that they captured a mounted courier one man climbed the parapet and brought away a flag which had been shot away curtis was burning with eagerness to assault his men shared his enthusiasm of course it cannot be said whether he would have succeeded or not though his spirit so infected general comstock that he changed his mind and now believed the movement practicable but the orders were given to re-embark and slowly and reluctantly curtis drew away his men from the coveted prize that he believed was in his hands the re-embarkation of the two thousand five hundred who had landed took as much time as would have been required to put the whole force on shore the weather grew worse the next day and a portion of curtis's brigade remained on shore until the twenty seventh without molestation by the confederates on the evening of that day general butler arrived at fort monroe and sent a brief telegram to general grant announcing his return and the failure of the expedition on the third of january he made a more detailed report throwing the blame of the failure upon admiral porter saying that the first delay of three days of good weather was due to the navy not being on hand when the army arrived 
that the powder-boat was prematurely exploded that porter should have run by the fort and thus blockaded wilmington that hoke's division was in front of him making the enemy's force greater than his own that the experience of port hudson and fort wagner convinced him that so strong a work as fisher could not be taken by assault upon this general grant made a merciless endorsement to the effect that he had never intended that butler should go with the expedition and that he was in error in stating that he came back in obedience to his instructions grant immediately relieved general butler from his command which closed his military career he was summoned before the committee on the conduct of the war a few days later and defended himself with his usual vigor and adroitness and the committee in their report after hearing grant and porter fully justified the action of butler the president was deeply disappointed by the untoward result of the expedition finding that admiral porter and the navy department were still confident that an attack if properly made would succeed without losing a moment of time in regrets and without even waiting for the official reports of the affair he directed that admiral porter should hold his position off fort fisher and that the secretary of the navy should send in his name a telegram to general grant inviting him to a renewed cooperation in attacking the fort to this grant instantly acceded he sent back the same force which had gone before adelbert ames's and charles j payne's divisions adding joseph c abbott's brigade of the twenty fourth corps and assigned to command the expedition general alfred h terry a landing was effected on the thirteenth of january in this case there was no room for doubt or vacillation the failure of butler was a sufficient education for terry he knew he was sent there to take the fort he proceeded with the greatest energy and singleness of purpose to do this his first work was to draw a strong line of contravallation across the narrow sand-spit about two miles north of the fort to protect his rear against any attack from wilmington this was completed by a hard night's work at eight in the morning terry's foothold on the peninsula was secured payne and abbott were placed in this line under cover of the fire of the fleet which now worked with splendid zeal and activity under the stimulus of the hope and gratification occasioned by the return of the army ames's division with curtis in the lead moved down the river to within six hundred yards of the fort where terry curtis and comstock made a careful reconnaissance curtis felt himself at home on this ground he was as ready as ever to assault and an attack was arranged for the afternoon of the fifteenth ames was to move on the land face with his division and the navy inspired by a noble emulation undertook to attack the bastion at the sea angle at the same time in the morning porter began and carried on perhaps the most tremendous fire to which a fort has ever been subjected from a fleet nothing could withstand the rain of projectiles which he poured upon fort fisher at first the confederate cannoneers stood stoutly enough to their guns while the infantry huddled in their bomb-proofs but the fire was too hot for human endurance one by one the guns of the fort were dismounted or destroyed until hardly a response came from the parapets to the thunder of the ships at two o'clock curtis began to move forward against the land face of the fort galosha pennypacker and lewis bell following in close support 
they went forward rapidly availing themselves of every inequality of the ground under a severe fire of musketry until being near enough for the final rush the fleet was signalled to change the direction of its fire and curtis led his brigade directly at the bastion by the river at the same instant the naval force gallantly led by commander k r brice attempted to storm the bastion on the sea beach this attempt failed with the loss of many brave men notably of lieutenants s w preston and b h porter two of the most brilliant and promising officers in the service but the diversion thus made was of great advantage to curtis in distracting the attention of the garrison at a critical moment the irresistible rush of his brigade carried them over the parapet and pennypacker gained the palisade from the earthwork to the river they were both now inside the works and ready to take them in reverse but here they found that their labor was only begun the system of traverses was so complete that it required nearly a dozen separate actions to carry the fort the garrison under colonel william lamb an officer of high bravery and intelligence fought with desperate courage but the progress of the national soldiers though slow and hotly disputed was never once checked the routed sailors and marines took charge of the line in the rear and abbott was set free to reinforce the storming party in the traverses it was growing dark when the last rush was made which cleared the fort it was a well-won victory not likely gained curtis was terribly wounded in the head pennypacker had a severe wound the gallant bell was killed at the head of his brigade the garrison fled to fort buchanan at the southern extremity of federal point where late in the evening they surrendered colonel lamb and general w h c whiting the latter having taken part in the action though not in command both severely wounded were taken prisoners the forts at the mouth of the river were immediately abandoned rendering the victory complete and extremely valuable one hundred and sixty-nine cannons in all were captured and more than two thousand prisoners but better than all this the fleet could now enter the harbor and the days of blockade running were at an end a comical afterpiece here as at savannah followed the great drama two english vessels after the fort had been taken made their way by night through the fleet and gave the customary signals which were answered satisfactorily by general terry under the dictation of an intelligent negro the vessels came in their officers reported and were informed that their ships were prizes on the day that terry was preparing to storm fort fisher general schofield receiving his orders from grant to move the twenty third corps to the east he came as rapidly as possible by river and by rail to washington and reporting in person to grant at fort monroe went with him to fort fisher where with terry and porter the plan of the coming campaign was arranged schofield was placed in command of the new department of north carolina and the first task assigned to him was the capture of wilmington to serve as a base for sherman if anything should interrupt his march to goldsboro and next to open the route from newburn to goldsboro and concentrate his army there to meet sherman and be ready for any duty which the exigencies of the campaign might require the first division of the western troops that arrived was that of general j d cox followed a few days later by part 
of d n couches and with these and terry's force schofield moved on wilmington the confederate general hoke had entrenched himself with his own and what was left of whiting's troops across federal point on a line from myrtle sound to cape fear river and beyond the river a heavy earthwork called fort anderson guarded the right bank cox and ames marched against this position on the seventeenth by the right bank of the stream terry moved up the left bank a strong force of gunboats between them schofield kept his headquarters on a steamboat the fort was attacked by the fleet at long range and two of cox's brigades demonstrated against it while the rest of his force made a detour to the west to come in upon its rear thus threatened from every side the confederate garrison evacuated the place abandoning ten pieces of heavy ordnance and retreating to town creek halfway to wilmington halted in a strong position well covered by swamps ames with his division went back to the left bank where hoke's principal force was opposing terry cox cleverly turned the confederate position at town creek and coming in upon their rear dislodged and routed them capturing two guns and nearly four hundred prisoners the rest of them made their escape to wilmington cox pushed on with great energy the next day and came opposite to the city which was shrouded in smoke and gave other signs of evacuation terry had been stoutly resisted by hoke who was covering his purpose of retreat by this judicious action and schofield had ordered cox to cross the river and join the army on the left bank but cox seeing that wilmington was in extremity took the responsibility of disobeying his orders and explaining the situation to schofield his conduct was approved and at daybreak on the twenty second of february schofield celebrated the birthday of washington by an unopposed entry into wilmington the next thing to be done was to gain possession of goldsboro the point designated for the junction with sherman it was decided that new Bern afforded a better base for that movement as well as for sherman's subsequent operations than wilmington cox was therefore sent to new Bern to prepare it for that purpose and to set on foot the necessary repairs to the railway between new Bern and goldsboro in the prosecution of this work he advanced to the neighborhood of kingston on the news river about half-way to goldsboro where on the morning of the eighth of march he was attacked with great spirit by the confederate forces under general bragg consisting of hoke's command and some of the debris of hood's army one of cox's regiments in advance of his main line was routed and captured the ease with which this success was achieved was most encouraging to bragg who came up energetically against cox's force in position but was easily repulsed the attack was renewed the next day with unabated courage and although the confederates were again repulsed general schofield who had arrived on the field sent urgent orders to couch to hasten his march across country from wilmington before he arrived bragg had retired through goldsboro to concentrate with the rest of johnston's force who were preparing to resist sherman's northward march schofield occupied kinston on the fourteenth bridged the news and opened up communication with new burnt by river terry marching directly upon goldsboro from wilmington secured the crossing of the news south 
of that city which schofield occupied on the twenty first of march and made ready for the reception of sherman who on the twenty third here completed his march through the carolinas End of chapter three